For the week of January 7th, 2015, this is The Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello, people of Clean Tech. Happy New Year. Glad to have you with us. I am Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C., and uh, I'm shaking off a cold here that uh, so many around me have fallen victim to in recent weeks. And speaking of falling, this week we are talking falling oil prices. We have an expert here who is going to do his best to help us understand why oil prices are at five-year lows. We'll address what many out there are likely worrying about. Will it negatively impact the investment climate for certain types of renewables? Then later in the show, we'll talk about the viability of a gas tax in the U.S., look at a surprising turn of events in the U.S.-China trade case, and tell our listeners something they do not know. As always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, hopefully in better health than I. Catherine's in Washington, D.C. as well, and you know her as a partner at the clean tech public policy firm 38 North Solutions. Catherine, how are you? Doing great. It's hard to get the heart rate up to full speed after a nice couple of weeks off with all the kids. And uh, Jigger is a clean tech investor and entrepreneur. He's in New York City. Actually, no, he's in his recording studio in a Starbucks in San Francisco. How are you, sir? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Doing well. Uh, Let's meet our guest this week. Michael Levy is a senior fellow for energy and the environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is also author of the book Power Surge, Energy, Opportunity, and the Battle for America's Future. Michael Levy, welcome to the Energy Gang. Great to be with you guys. So you're known as a guy who likes to uh, break down and challenge conventional wisdom or simplistic assumptions about energy markets. And uh, as you've read a lot of the analysis about the dramatic changes in oil prices over the months, anything stick out to you as a, a conclusion or meme that is most, uh, most egregiously wrong? Well, it's pretty tough competition. I'd probably point to two. It's a close race between all of the conspiracy theories about how this has happened and who is working together to make it happen, uh, and the seemingly endless string of articles about how no one saw anything like this coming, which uh, mm-hmm. anyone who writes those should be forced to read all the analyst reports and uh, other bits that actually did foresee something like this happening. And I know you've written on both of those things. So I actually want to address one of those and uh, – terms of who is responsible, right? And there are a lot of factors, of course, contributing to the $50 per barrel price drop. Uh, Many people have said that OPEC countries are purposely keeping production high in order to suppress prices and test the the sensitivity of unconventional drilling operations here in the U.S. How much truth is in that? Well, look, I think the first point you need to start with is that OPEC is rarely a coherently functioning entity. So anything where people think that OPEC is doing anything in particular uh, should be met with some skepticism. I think you carefully describe this as OPEC countries, so it could be a series of them doing it. And usually what we're talking about uh, is Saudi Arabia. I think if you look at the chronology of what's happened, oil prices started to fall in June of last year, uh, mostly on the back of a weak global economy. And where the OPEC piece entered the story was when Saudi Arabia and others didn't step in to cut their supply in order to prop prices back up. So the first leg of this was mostly an economic story. And I think it's very difficult to attribute it to some deliberate strategy on the part of Saudi Arabia and others. Once prices started falling, I think a lot of other calculations came into play. Uh, But among all of them, it's worth observing that 
at no time in the last decade or so has Saudi Arabia or the other big oil producers stepped in to stop a price fall uh, when prices were as high as 60 or $70 a barrel, or even stepped in successfully when they were around $50 a barrel. So I don't think you need a special conspiracy theory or a special idea about testing shale or crushing Iran or whatever it is that you want uh, in order to understand why you've had this inaction on the part of some of the big producers. So let's talk about the, uh, the price sensitivity here in the United States. Um, we're already seeing drilling permits slow in Texas and North Dakota. How dramatically do you expect unconventional oil and gas production to slow given where prices are at. And when I talked to you last and we featured some of your comments on the podcast, you warned people not to underestimate the pace of innovation, helping drillers keep costs down, thus allowing them to operate at lower prices. So will there be as much of a slowdown as some predict? Well, there's a spectrum of predictions. And so there's likely to be a slowdown that someone predicted and that everyone else will be wrong in one direction or the other. I think when you look at people's estimates for the break-even price of various shale fields, established shale fields in the United States, uh, they tend to find that most wells can break even at relatively low prices. So in a, perfect, in a perfectly functioning world, uh, you would have a lot of U.S. production sustained at very low prices. Uh, but this isn't a perfectly functioning world. And uh, you have things like uh, smaller drillers which, with cash flow constraints, so they're not getting as much money in because the price is low, and so they're not as able to drill as much. They're not able to raise as much debt because uh, lenders are looking at their market capitalization. It's a lot smaller, so they're less willing to lend to them. And all those sorts of things can interrupt production. On top of that, a given property uh, that breaks even at $60 a barrel in the hands of one uh, highly effective company may only break even at $100 a barrel uh, if it's owned by a weaker company. So some of the adjustments you'll need to see, uh, bigger companies taking over smaller ones, uh, companies with stronger balance sheets taking over ones with uh, weaker balance sheets, uh, don't happen instantaneously. And it's that pace at which the industry adjusts as a whole, I think that's going to determine how quickly uh, production growth falls off in the United States. I think that's the big question right now. If you're looking over the next year, uh, for uh, the pace of change in the U.S. oil industry. So, you know, Chris Nelder talks a lot about these things from the oil drum and peak oil, and his whole thing is that basically that it's the growth in oil products has really been around natural gas liquids and other things, and that crude oil itself has stayed relatively flat since 2005 at like 73 to 75 million barrels a day. And, you know, keeping that number at 73 to 75 is going to be tough with lower oil prices. I mean, do you sort of see that as well? I guess I've never been particularly enamored with dividing the world into crude oil and natural gas liquids. The reality is that no one aside from industrial companies consumes either. We consume gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, plastics, and so on. And so what matters is what the supply of all these things does to the price. And what the market is telling us is that whatever it is that's being produced – uh, crude oil, natural gas liquids, this ultra-light oil, which is actually somewhere in between, uh, whatever it's doing, it's creating an excess of production over consumption, uh, which is driving inventories up and prices down. Uh, I think when we look out at the future, it's interesting to distinguish between crude oil and natural gas liquids to anticipate the impact of supply growth on prices. And I've actually been working on research on that. It's, it's actually difficult to disentangle. Uh, but I, I think if you're just looking at the current 
situation in the record over the last 10 years, uh, what the market is telling us is that uh, while some people may want to put these in different categories, whatever it is that's being produced uh, is uh, only going to be consumed, at least in the short term, if prices are relatively low. But do you actually believe in this concept of around, you know, I guess, you know, broadly speaking, which is sort of this peak oil concept was that, you know, that we basically have decline rates of three, four million barrels a day of oil production per year out of Saudi Arabia and other places, and that people really do have to spend hundreds of billions of dollars of additional money today than they did 15 years ago to maintain production. Oh, I agree. People need to spend a lot more than they used to to maintain production, and that is consistent with the fact that long-term oil prices are considerably higher than they were a decade ago. Natural decline rates are hard to pinpoint. In a lot of these conventional fields, you're continually trying to boost the recovery rate, and so when prices are low, you're going to have higher apparent declines. And when prices are higher, people will do more to stem those declines, and so you see lower declines, but that still takes money. And you don't get that money going in unless uh, a lot of it is also coming back out on the other side. That's a, a reason, by the way, why I'm skeptical that current prices are sustainable over the long run. Current low prices are sustainable over the long run. Prediction is dangerous, uh, obviously, but you need to have returns that justify the investment uh, that uh, balances the market at a given price. And when you say sustainable over the long run, do you mean six months, a year? What is your time frame when you talk about that? When I think about the long run, I think five years or more. Okay. I think if almost anything can happen in oil markets over a period of a year or two. Uh, and that's partly why there were a lot of people saying that uh, you shouldn't expect oil to stay around $100 a barrel forever. Uh, small mismatches between supply and demand uh, can't be balanced except through uh, very large changes in prices because production and consumption, uh, particularly over shorter timescales, uh, six months, a year, two years, are very unresponsive to price. Okay, so low prices in the medium term. Uh, a lot of people want to know what that means for the investment climate for clean tech. Very big, broad question. But uh, maybe you could break down some of the areas that you think would be most impacted by low oil prices and the areas that are most insulated. Absolutely, and I'd be interested in what some of you have to uh, say about this. So if you're looking at fundamentals, biofuels are the obvious place that's going to be hurt by low oil prices. Uh, and uh, even if you look at the mandates that are out there, the way the mandates actually get implemented, uh, you all know they get revised depending on market conditions. So I don't think they provide uh, all that much of a floor. Uh, so I think biofuels are the obvious one to get hit in a big way. Uh, you also all know that on the electricity side of things, uh, you don't have direct competition with oil in the United States. Uh, you can see a few spillovers there. And the first is that while you don't have direct competition with oil or oil products in the United States, you do have direct competition in electricity in some other parts of the world, particularly in Asia. Uh, and even if you don't have it in an explicit way, it's, it's baked in through the way that natural gas imports are priced. So natural gas imports uh, in Asia and to some extent still in Europe are priced typically based on a formula connected to oil. So when oil price drops, natural gas price drops, so the competition becomes different uh, for anything uh, generating electricity. Uh, the other piece is that uh, as we see low oil prices incentivize structural transformations in the U.S. oil industry, you're going to see spillovers into the U.S. natural gas industry. So if the oil industry becomes better capitalized, 
or more efficient, I think you're going to see uh, spillovers on that to the natural gas side. And there are a bunch of other things you can count off where oil, uh, oil production dynamics affect natural gas dynamics and, and then spill over to uh, electricity competition and, as a result, renewables. But, again, these are indirect so think- impacts. So do you think that um, liquefied natural gas is then struggling because Japan's no longer paying 18 bucks a million BTU? Absolutely. I think we've already seen one of the proposed U.S. natural gas facilities say uh, we're at a minimum not going to try and start up in 2018 as we were originally planning. I think anyone trying to get financing for a $5 billion project that in some ways is a bet on uh, the difference between oil prices and natural gas prices is going to have a harder time than uh, they did before. And so that means slightly lower natural gas prices uh, here, uh, but slightly higher ones overseas. So I had one question. Can I ask one question quickly yeah. before we sure. get no. off? So there's the sort of fundamental impact on renewable energy, but then there's the capital market side. And while you know a lot of investors are smart, I have to imagine there are there are some stupid ones who've just sort of fleed everything alternative because oil prices are low and that's what they, you know, they think that if oil, you know, they don't, they actually are naive and don't think that, you know, solar is a separate market from oil. Are you guys seeing that sort of dynamic? Is that, and if, it, if you Justin, are, is that just, is that sort of just like a background noise or does it have yeah, real world it's, impact? It's just in the stock price. So stock prices are going down because people yeah. think they're correlated with oil. But yeah. the ability for people to raise project finance, which is what really matters to our industry, yep. is okay. unchanged. There's basically 10 major tax equity investors in the U.S. There's a whole bunch of pension funds and others. Right. And okay. those guys are smart investors. And so they just see contracts and like the cash flows. But okay. I agree with you completely that, like, I mean, there's some impacts on the fact that the stock prices should be, you know, I don't think it matters actually for like Sun Edison or Sun Power stock, but it right. definitely matters for like Terraform or Nextera or or um, the Yield Co. stocks, mm-hmm. because by definition, if their stock price goes down, then their net dividend yield is going up, which right. means that their net cost of capital has gone up. Okay. Yeah, and for the folks I work with, like the the technology folks, like energy storage, those investors are sophisticated and are just focused on the technology. So the stock market is an interesting show and has some spillovers, but most of what matters is disconnected from that, at least in the sort of short run. Well, in smart money, like the you know the the seven or or eight major hedge funds that made all the money on Sun Edison, for instance, by taking three or four percent ownership stakes when the stock price was five bucks, mm-hmm. they're actually using this opportunity to double down. So a lot of the smart investors are like, this is just the stock market being stupid, and they'll figure it out when the numbers come in in 2015. Michael, I was going to ask you about another political um, hot button here, um, which is Keystone Pipeline and um, trying to kind of look at the politics there because Congress is about to um, either they're about to have a bill on approving Keystone. The president has threatened to veto it. Given the price changes, does it actually make it easier for the president to threaten this veto or, you know, how does Keystone kind of figure into this? I suspect that lower prices make it easier for the president to threaten uh, to veto this. Uh, Look, whenever oil prices are high, people seem to believe that anything that will boost oil production is good. I mean, just look back to the 2008 election campaign, the hysteria around drill baby drill, uh, when that coincided with the spike in oil prices. So higher oil prices make people more interested in more production, things that facilitate it. 
And so we currently have the opposite example. I think it does open up some of that space. I think the flip side, if he were calculating uh, what the public response will be to this, with oil prices this low and this volatile, you could see a bump up in prices for all sorts of different reasons. And no one wants to make a decision that can be connected to rising oil and gasoline prices, even if it's a specious connection. No one wants to make that uh, decision and then get caught uh, then got, get caught out. I think you see the same thing in the oil exports debate as well. No one wants to uh, set the stage for someone to cut a commercial that says uh, President Obama vetoed the Keystone XL pipeline and your gasoline went up by 50 cents in the last uh, six months. So how do you think this plays out on the political side when you think about you know the fact that oil jobs are really created during the drilling phase? So even if these companies can continue to pump oil at lower prices, they're not probably going to keep the same drilling budgets. There's going to be less money to go around. There's going to be people that probably get laid off in Texas, North Dakota. I mean, you know, how do you think this plays out in the 2016 election? Well, so you're already seeing this phenomenon that you're talking about. You're already seeing the uh, impact on jobs in Texas and North Dakota uh, because you're right. Uh, you're going to see this continued production. You're going to see continued drilling, but at a lower level. And the big companies have all announced cuts in their capital budgets. You've seen the services companies that they contract to do these drilling and fracking jobs uh, also start to lay off workers. And that will happen uh, more and more precipitously if this is sustained. These companies don't like laying off workers right away because it's expensive to reacquire them and retrain them. So they are hesitant, but then it can happen uh, very rapidly. How does and it play out in, 20, in 2016? Uh, that's a much, more complicated, uh, a much more complicated question that I mostly leave to wiser political minds. I suspect that most of uh, the big impacts are in places like Texas, North Dakota, Wyoming. I mean, these are the ones that have very large concentrations of oil and gas employment, and those aren't exactly toss-up states. Yeah, and I think it totally cuts both ways because if the price of filling up your car with gasoline is low, then you know, then then that's a political boon. Right, most Americans benefit from what's happening right now. The stock market seems to be freaking out in part because the damage to oil companies is front-loaded, but the benefit to the broader economy that gets filtered through consumer behavior uh, happens more gradually over time. And I think you'll see that over time. And so for most states, uh, there are net gains. We took a look, uh, or we had someone take a look about a year or so ago in anticipation of this sort of event, uh, some researchers from the Dallas Fed, at uh, what the impact would be state by state on jobs, in that case from a 25% decline in oil prices. And we found, I think, only six states that would have net employment losses. All of the other 44 would have net employment gains. I just think this is going to be ridiculously interesting. We're going to be hiring between five and 10,000 people a month through 2015 and 2016 as the solar ITC expires at the end of 2016. I think the wind guys got a respite with their four-week extension, so they bought a bunch of turbines and are using the work-in-progress stuff. It just seems that when while all these people are losing jobs, we're going to be hiring like crazy over the next two years. It seems like a perfect time to get a whole bunch of politicians on our side. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I totally agree. I think it's great. It, I think it's great messaging, although um, the anti-messagers are very, very strong. <laughs> I have a question, Michael, about how to think about this and, and put all these factors together. So, um, you know, how should the renewables industry or even climate advocates look at these, these changes in oil prices? One could re- look at these changes in the volatile oil market and draw 
a negative or positive conclusion. When prices are high, they encourage more unconventional production, resources that are more energy and emissions intensive, but they also help the economics of renewable fuels and also um, niche forms of renewable electricity that might compete with diesel. When they're lower, they discourage unconventional production, which is what enviros want, but they also encourage more consumption while eroding the economics of some renewables. So when laying this all out, I think it's easy for people to be confused when people try to draw definitive conclusions about what's going on. How do you think about the yin-yang of these factors at play? So you're talking mostly about economic dynamics. And I actually think that the story there is pretty clear-cut. Lower oil prices are bad for climate change and uh, to the extent that there's competition with renewables. They're bad for renewables. I think that the focus on the distinction between unconventionals versus conventional oil is a, mostly a red hair, and what matters most is how much is consumed in total. Uh, but I also think that focusing uh, purely on the economic dynamics, essentially as spectators, is the wrong way to go. The dynamics that can matter just as much are the political ones that arise. And we've actually seen some good ones elsewhere in the world. We've seen Prime Minister Modi in India take advantage of lower oil prices to remove diesel subsidies which in the long run should be good news economically and good news environmentally, just like it was before, uh, but now it's politically possible. And you see something similar in Indonesia uh, and other countries taking a look at that. Uh, I do think you have risks, though, of bad political reactions. Uh, You only need to look back to the experience of the 1980s to see that. In 1975, after the first oil crisis, you had a bipartisan push into the first ever fuel economy standards for cars and trucks, when they came up for renewal, renewal in, 19, in the mid-'80s with very low prices, uh, you basically saw that set aside. Uh, and while there's more political support now for continuing these kinds of rules, I mean, there will be challenges. You're going to have in a few years a mandatory review of the, uh, of the fuel economy standards that are supposed to run from 2017 through 2025. And uh, you know, I've talked to auto execs who are involved in negotiating those. And and they said, and this was before the price collapsed, that if prices were a lot lower in 2017, that discussion would be very different from what it was when they were originally negotiated. So I think instead of being spectators, people ought to be focused on how they deal with opportunities here, but also how they mitigate uh, some of the dangers. But I don't see how you can say that it's unequivocally bad for the climate to have lower oil prices. I mean, the vast majority of new oil is unconventional. I mean, don't you think the tar sands are basically sunk? I mean, no one's going to actually um, exploit Arctic oil right now with these prices. I mean, isn't that good for the climate? If what we have is a surplus of oil production, and that's driving down prices, and as a result, uh, some other oil doesn't, doesn't get developed, I don't think that on net is good for the climate. You still have to start from the, the, the initial point, which is this is all happening because there's more production. And when there's more production, there's more consumption. Otherwise, the oil uh, wouldn't have anywhere to go. And when there's more consumption, there's more emissions. Now, when you're, if you're looking at conventional environmental impacts, you might say more production onshore in the United States drives prices down, keeps people away from risky projects in the Arctic. That's good for Arctic ecosystems. I think that's true. But when you're talking about climate change, uh, getting people to produce a bit less in one place because they're producing a lot more somewhere else, uh, just doesn't, the math doesn't work out. So economy-wide demand reductions are really the key then? 
Yeah, I think ultimately, if you want to get on top of this, it's going to have to be demand-led. And, and this is a really important distinction between different sources of lower oil prices. So lower oil prices that are the result of less oil consumption, you know, of control on demand, uh, do reduce supply across the board and are very good news. So those low oil prices are good news for climate change. When low oil prices are the result of more production in whatever part of the world, uh, yes, the impact of that is mitigated a bit by pullbacks elsewhere, but the net impact on climate change is bad. Now, there are other positive impacts that come from lower oil prices, but for climate change, I don't think you can put it in that category. A very fascinating discussion. Really glad we had you on the podcast. Uh, Michael Levy is a senior fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations here in Washington, D.C. His book is called Power Surge, Energy, Opportunity, and the Battle for America's Future. Uh, Michael, thanks for being here. We really appreciate your time. Great talking to all of you. All right, on to our second topic now. Americans are mostly celebrating low gas prices, but there's a hidden cost to those prices. They mean less tax revenue to help pay for our already crumbling transportation infrastructure. And that's leading many state and national politicians, including some prominent Republicans, to call for increasing gas taxes. Boosting the national gas tax has been politically untouchable in this country. We haven't raised it since the early 1990s. As a result, the National Highway Fund is short tens of billions of dollars. But the strong dip in gas prices has some warming up to a tax increase, and five states already increased theirs this year. Catherine, do you think we're going to see a new tax, new, new gas tax passed by a Republican-controlled Congress this year? Well, if there is a time to do it, now's the time, because as you say, the gas prices are so low. Um this is sort of the first big policy piece of legislation that is due up. It's it we're we're running out of ways to pay for the highway trust fund. It's running out of money, as you say. Um, they're desperate for ways to raise money. They haven't increased the gas tax uh, in 22 years, um, and if there's a time to do it, it's now. The trick is um, this this bill that they have to put together by May is the Surface Transportation Bill. The the acronym is Safety Lou, um, which sounds like some kind of Dr. Zeus character, um, but that's what contains the Highway Trust Fund. And the chairman for both for the committees in the House and Senate, Bud Schuster in the House, and then John Thune in the Senate. They need to get something put together that they can get enough votes for um, to get through. And and there is some coming together of both the progressives who have always said that the gas tax is regressive and it hurts poor people. But now that, you know, that they're running out of money to really build infrastructure and gas prices are so low, they're starting to move off of that position and some of the more conservative folks, um, like Corker from Tennessee, who's introduced a bill with Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Kentucky, I mean, um, Connecticut, um, want to help, want to start raising that over two years, 12 cents a gallon, uh, six cents each year um, to try and then link it to inflation so that we can actually have money to build crumbling interstate highways, bridges, roads. I mean, the, this is a big, big deal. Yeah, Uh we're falling short by around, I've seen estimates, between 20 and 70 cents a gallon when considering all the infrastructure costs associated with driving. And people like me, who hardly ever drive, are paying the same for roads and bridges as the people who use them every day because oh, just under 20% of revenue for the Highway Trust Fund is coming from the general treasury. 
So the eight, the, I think the current gas tax is 18.4 mm-hmm. cents. Is that right? Yep, that's right. So another 12 cents. I mean, I've seen some estimates that the the real tax should be anywhere from a couple dollars to up to $4 a gallon when you consider all the costs associated with driving. Well, I mean, just being like literal about what it costs, I think federal government spends about $40, $50 billion a year in in uh, transportation. The state and local governments pay about $110 billion a year. That's and, and there's still probably a gap of $50 billion a year that we need to spend that people aren't spending on bridges and stuff. That's $200 billion a year that we need for transportation. That's just literal cost without any of the sort of like knock-on effects around emissions and healthcare costs and, and all that stuff. Yeah, the, the Atlantic City Lab had a great piece on the gas tax this week and drew out a study from the 90s that showed the actual cost of driving when factoring in all external costs was over $3 trillion. So... Yeah, and I could see eventually we're going to need something. Some I I know that folks on both sides of the aisle would like to see some another way to fund infrastructure projects and infrastructure bank or what have you. But this bill is the next big thing, and the this runs out in May. They have to do something. One of the keys, ironically, is that they got rid of earmarks, and earmarks were actually a way to get things done in Congress. So part of this hinges not on the chairman of these committees because. Their job is just to get these bills written and done. But the issue is, will leadership, will House Speaker Boehner, will Mitch McConnell allow for earmarks to be put into this bill? Because earmarks are the way that you sweeten the pot for people, that you get people to vote for something because they maybe get a little something to take home. Because remember, otherwise they're going to go home and their people are going to say, you raised our taxes. So instead, they need to be able to go home and say, hey, standing on that bridge and saying, I'm fixing this bridge for you. And, you know, that means something to people. They need to be able to take something home. And earmarks would allow them to do that. So I'm really interested to see if they start coming back. The one thing that that really is interesting to me is around the sharing economy and Uber and self-driving cars and all this other stuff. I mean, the thing with the 12 cents is it's a real number. It actually can be calculated. If you generate, if you drive 12,000 miles a year and you multiply by X, Y, Z, you are spending an extra X dollars. And I mean, I do think that the sort of clean energy industry around car sharing and self-driving vehicles and all this other stuff can now say, look, you know, like the the transportation 1.0 model costs this much money. We would be half the cost if you guys would just invest in us. And that's going to be fascinating to see what the Department of Transportation does. Well, it is fascinating. And there's, the, there's a flip side to that. And that is, as cars get more efficient, and we travel greater distances without paying more taxes using less fuel, uh, you can see why we might need a greater gas tax. So it's a very interesting dynamic when you consider both the sharing economy and how vehicles in general are just getting much more efficient. Very sticky debate around how much we should be paying. Yeah, well, it's exactly the same thing with the electric utility industry, right? I mean, if the utility industry doesn't sell more kilowatt hours, then it has to raise rates just to keep up with inflation, and the transportation industry is the same. If, if people aren't actually using more gasoline every year then if, and they're using it more efficiently, we have to raise the gas tax just to keep up with the increase in people's salaries and the increase in the cost of concrete and all that stuff. So, Catherine, what is your confidence level that we will increase the gas tax this year? Uh, we are far behind almost every other developed country. 
Yeah, I have a feeling that we that they'll be able to get something through. Um, I don't know how big it is, but I actually think they will because then they have a year to recover before the election. So this is the time to do it if they're going to do it. Um, so we'll wait and see, but I, I'm kind of hopeful. All right, let's go on to our third subject. Uh, while many of us were on break celebrating the new year, the Commerce Department was dealing with the solar trade war between the U.S. and China. This past Saturday, the Commerce Department issued another review on tariffs on Chinese solar panels uh, from May of 2012 to November of 2013 and found that China perhaps wasn't dumping as much as thought and commerce therefore cut tariffs for imports during that time period in half. This is only a preliminary review, dear God, one of many preliminary reviews up to this point, but when uh, finalized later this year, it will likely cut tariffs from 31% to around 15%. A second administrative review coming somewhere in the next year will be even more important. And that review is going to cover 2014 when a lot more Chinese products were coming into the U.S. And the question is, will the lower tariffs stand? Uh, Jigger, Solar World has largely been the winner in this process at the Commerce Department. And I'm wondering, do you think Solar World got its first loss here with these reduction in tariffs? Well, this whole process and all the preliminary decisions has been a huge loss for the industry. So I don't view this as a win or a loss. I mean, I think it's it's in the right direction. What I'm hoping is that the White House isn't using us as a pawn with this stuff. I mean, this came out of DOC, which is really the political arm of this. And the ITC, the International Trade Commission, is more of the judicial arm. And like what I'm worried about is the White House saying, oh, like, you know, we did this because China said if we did this, then we might be able to get a deal done. And I don't know. I just don't like being a political pawn for the White House. And I'm worried that that's what this really was. Now, you you've said that this has been a big loss for the industry. But when we look at the numbers, we've seen record growth in residential installations. Utility scale installations are booming. You know, we're going to see record installations over the next two years. Uh, we've seen, you know, module prices are flat in the U.S. They've declined a little bit internationally, but flat in the U.S. So there has been some impact there. But we just haven't seen the big negative impact and the big losses for the industry that you guys have been talking about. Well, yeah. I mean, we grew less than we would have grown. It's a tough argument to make. But you're telling me that you think there's no difference between 62 cents a watt and 72 cents a watt for panels? I mean, the fact that we're paying 10 cents a watt more for panels now in the United States than they are overseas for bulk orders because of this trade case is a big deal. I mean, and yeah, I agree that we're a very innovative bunch in the U.S., and so we were able to continue to grow the industry under those conditions. But we would have grown far faster had we not had all this confusion and headwinds. On top of that, just to give you one example, my friend Oliver Kohler, who used to be at SunPower, has now got a company called IST, which is doing a BIPV product. Because of this new ruling, it is going to – like so the, for the first ruling in 2012, he switched from Chinese cells or Taiwanese cells to Suniva cells. Because of this new ruling, because he's taking Suniva cells to China to make the modules and bring it back, he's going to have to switch back to Chinese modules because it's actually more cost-effective for him to use Chinese modules with this new ruling than Suniva cells made in the United States. How screwed up is that? I spent some time uh, yesterday talking to uh, John Smirno from SIA, who's negotiating, doing the sort of the industry side of negotiations. And I know you work with him a lot, Jigger. And he said that there were three kind of key things to keep in mind. One is that the Friday's decision on the rates, um, that they're 
cautiously optimistic. Now, they're just the preliminary, so the final won't come out until April or June. So he said they're kind of cautiously optimistic that those will hold true. But the second point he said was that these are still just estimates, that it still leaves a huge amount of uncertainty in the market, and that, of course, the negotiated solution is a preferred option. Um, he doesn't say that anybody has walked away from the table at all, but that industry has still a huge part to play in pushing the governments together. And then the third big point that he said is that any negotiated solution, and I'm sure, Jigger, you would have something to say about this, has to have broad industry um, support so that we're not picking winners and losers, so that so it isn't bifurcated um, by technologies. And another thing I think we have to keep in mind is that this reduction in tariffs is only for products coming in between uh, 2012 and 2013. And this was when companies were using the Taiwanese loophole. They were shipping product through Taiwan in order to get around the tariffs. So there really aren't, isn't that much product that applies to this tariff reductions. And when they have the review about products in 2014, it'll be interesting to know if um, you know, these lower tariffs stand. And some suspect that they will not. Well, the, the part that really bugs me is that we're headed for a global module shortage potentially in 26, 2017. Why would people possibly want to prefer the U.S. market with all these trade case things, et cetera, as opposed to shipping those modules to India or Japan or some other place? I mean, we may be faced with a module shortage that's disproportionately worse for the United States than for other countries because we're making it harder for global providers of solar modules to do business in the United States. Well, it'll be interesting to see if, uh, per Catherine's point, how this impacts the negotiations, because a 15% tariff, as uh, Shail Khan, our VP of research, said, is very digestible for these companies, and uh, 15% is low enough so that the Chinese may not feel like they need to negotiate. So we'll see what happens with the final decision and uh, what commerce says about panels coming in in 2014. All right, folks, it's time to wrap up the show, tell you something you do not know. Catherine Hamilton is up first. What do you have? Yeah, this is this is so insider Congress stuff. I don't know if people um, know anything about what happened yesterday. Yesterday was when the speaker was elected, when everybody was sworn, all the new members of Congress were sworn in. In fact, all the members were, you know, re-sworn into Congress. It, it was it's a very strange day up on the Hill. I spend a lot of it up there, um, walking around from office to office. There are just a zillion people up there schmoozing, you know, trying to get the lay of the land. It's everything is very loosey goosey. There are a million people. The new members of Congress, nobody knows who they are. So you know, people are pushing them out of the way. But what happened yesterday was very interesting, which is that there was the biggest defection in at least 100 years, maybe more, against Speaker Boehner. Um, 25 members voted against him. And just to put this in perspective, every every time there's an election, maybe a couple of people vote against the Speaker, and you can literally vote for anybody you want to. So, for example, somebody voted for Colin Powell. Somebody voted for – two people voted for senators. You can vote for anybody you want to. Um, but what it says when you come out publicly, because your speaker has already been determined within your conference, you've already had all the conversations, is that you are coming out very forcefully and publicly against your speaker. And for 25 um, of his party to do that is pretty significant. Well, that's there not just significant. It's historic, right? It is historic. Um, and and so it kind of remains to be seen what that means and what that'll mean for him being able to hold his, you know, his conference together as they as they try to get these huge, huge deals done, like on the gas tax. 
Did anyone write in Catherine Hamilton? No, they didn't. Uh, <laughs> though, um, yeah, there there are always some interesting ones. Uh, there, you know that they're good backstories on some of these. You know, I think you'd make a great speaker of the house. <laughs> Jigger, tell us something we do not know. Well, Michael sort of gave you a preview of mine. It was really about the diesel subsidies in India. Um, you know, Prime Minister Modi basically is going to slash diesel subsidies in India, and the you know oil price. Reduction is really giving him political cover. I mean, just to put this in perspective, it costs the Indian government over $23 billion a year in diesel and kerosene subsidies per year, of which about $4 billion of that's kerosene subsidies. And what this is, what's really important is combining this with the uh, mandate that 300 million people in India get access to energy, um, that this is actually not going to, um, it's just going to mean that the reduction in oil prices doesn't negatively impact the. Um, Economics for like Simpa Networks and Orb Energy and the others doing energy access in India because diesel prices won't go down by that much in India because of the removal of the subsidies at the same time. Uh, I'm going to talk about Elon Musk. This week, uh, the CEO of Tesla held a Reddit Ask Me Anything. We've talked about doing an Ask Me Anything ourselves from the Energy Gang, so we may announce one of those in the coming quarter in 2015. Um, he held this AMA to promote the launch of the Falcon 9 rocket from his other little company you may have heard of called SpaceX that's going to be bringing supplies up to the International Space Station hopefully later this week. I, I don't know if any of you have ever monitored one of the AMAs on Reddit, but you should. It's They're really funny. A lot of famous people do them. The comments and the responses can be uh, pretty damn comical at times. Musk revealed some personal information about himself. He considers showering to be the habit that has had the most important impact on his life. He believes that the singularity, that is when uh, artificial intelligence becomes more powerful than humans, is a real concern. He sleeps six hours a night. Gosh, I sleep like eight or nine. Uh, And much to the glee of many on Reddit, he revealed he's a fan of the game Kerbal Space Program, which allows you to create your own spacecraft and space program from scratch. It's an extremely popular game, and I haven't played it because I'm not much of a gamer. Anyway, I don't have any real deep knowledge for our listeners today, but in the spirit of telling you something you do not know, there is some really random stuff you didn't know about one of the most popular CEOs in the world. Oh, yeah, and you got to watch the Roomba video. It's like the most hilarious thing ever. <laughs> That's right. He posted, as an example of why the singularity is coming, a cat in a shark costume riding a Roomba chasing a duck. And at that, it is time to sign off. Thanks for being with us in the new year, folks. Help us make 2015 a successful year. Take a moment right now to tweet, Facebook, Pinterest, email, embed, criticize, or do whatever you want with this podcast. We rely not just on the cold, calculated hand of automated search to spread the word, but we rely on you as well. So please take a moment to help others interested in the business of clean tech to find this show. And you can, of course, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. Thanks to Jigger and Catherine for their insight. I will catch the two of you next week. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com.